Master of None with Clifford Hudson, the podcast where we discover how jack-of-all-trades can still reach the top. It's time to embrace your wide variety of interests and turn down the prevailing pressure to spend all of your time becoming an expert. The greatest lessons emerge from personal discovery, and variety is life's multiplier of opportunity. Now, on to today's conversation. Master of None. This is Clifford Hudson. In our conversation today, we're going to be focused on themes arising from my book, Master of None, How a Jack of All Trades Can Still Reach the Top. As a matter of fact, that subtitle very much applies to my guest today, because were I to attempt as a young person to design the career that I would have thought was the preferred path for me, I would have utilized a blueprint of my guest's career. My guest today is Mayor Kathy Taylor the former mayor of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the former Secretary of Commerce of the state of Oklahoma. In her career, she has continued to respond affirmatively, saying yes to the opportunities that have confronted her along the way, and also leveraged her skill sets and her experience into the many and varied opportunities that have come in her path. I think you'll enjoy listening to Mayor Taylor's story. It is a unique one and an interesting one. So I look forward to sharing this time with you, with Mayor Kathy Taylor. My guest today is Mayor Kathy Taylor. We're going to talk in the context of my recent book, Master of None, because the subtitle, it seems to me, has particular application here. In Master of None, there are a couple of chapters that seem to have particular application. One of those is about my own rise in which the title of the chapter is Just Say Yes. And another one is And Matters More Than Your What. Your and matters more than your what. And when I look at Mayor Taylor's path, there are several ands that she pursued. And when she saw them, uh, she said, yes. And I think you'll find that those chapters in her life, each of one to which she said yes and pursued it with amazing diligence and success, you'll find a very, very interesting story altogether. So, Mayor Taylor, welcome. How are you? Thanks, Cliff. You can call me Kathy. I appreciate the respect, however. <laughs> okay, I'll be happy to call you Kathy. So, I very appreciate I appreciate you being on the program today. It's great to great to be with you. And I think that our listeners to this podcast will learn many things about you that perhaps they didn't know about your course of uh, your professional path and uh, one that I find quite interesting as well. But it might be interesting for the uh, listener first to have a good understanding of where you were born and where you grew up and key events, you know, in your younger years that uh, might have affected your outlook as you continued through life. So you were born in Oklahoma City, right? I was born in Oklahoma City, attended public school in uh, Oklahoma City, was graduated from John Marshall High School, and went to the University of Oklahoma. And I suppose um, the events that most impacted the trajectory of my life is that I lost my father my first month in college at the University of Oklahoma. And 11 months later, on my 19th birthday, I lost my mother. And I was, my older sisters were already out of the house and uh, had families and uh, had no surviving grandparents. And so I really had to think about uh, what was next for me, whether I could continue and finish college, whether I needed to drop out and work for a while, because they're uh, my parents were very young, in their uh, mid-50s when they died, and so there there wasn't a great nest egg for me to rely upon. Right. Well, that's a pretty extraordinary set of events for a person uh, that age, the age you were at that time. Uh, even if you had a nest egg, you know, just get the unsettling nature of that would be um, an extraordinary life experience that would, I think, set many people off on a, on a different path, an unanticipated path. So, But your path was one. I seem to recall that you stayed in college, continued in college, and and took a degree in journalism. I did. I received a degree in journalism from um, OU, 
I worked at the Daily Oklahoman uh, from the midnight to 6 a.m. shift, filing Mm. glossy pictures, if if you know what those were, so that when someone needed a file photo, they could pull them out. Mm. Um, And so that that was that and wrapping packages at Street's Department Store uh, and the kindness of a family that I actually only recently met in Sepulpa, Oklahoma, got me through college. I took um, a year off between college and law school and did some uh, traveling as a job and then also was an elevator operator at the Washington Monument. So oh, I had some I interesting <laughs> interesting jobs before I went back uh, to law school. Well, uh, let's go back just a moment, though. It's, it's quite a fascinating uh, blend of trades you were developing <laughs> through that time. Um, but it sounds like one of the things that you you're saying implicitly or explicitly was at 19 when you were confronted with that with your mother's passing and now trying to say, gee, where do I go from here? You you quite apparently decided to stay in college, stay focused, but you, you uh, necessarily had to support yourself at least for part of the costs of that and the result of which was you had an interesting array of jobs to help do that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and those jobs... I learned from working in the newspaper room from the midnight to 6 a.m. shift that uh, the, that while I loved writing, journalism would not be uh, a long-term uh, vocation for me. So that was a good education. Um, and I, I learned the importance of, uh, of education and being able to uh, support yourself and, uh, and, and move forward. Well, I think one of the things about uh, at that young age experiencing a, diff- a number of things is it helps you learn what you don't want to do. And uh, that's part of what I hear you describing. And I can say the winter I was uh, 19, I spent uh, the, the holiday break working on roofs in Western Oklahoma. And that helped me, uh, through, and that was through December and January. And that helped me decide that I wanted to go back to college the next semester. There was no doubt. I made good money doing that, but, uh, but it helped me understand that's not something I was going to be doing, uh, certainly not on a full-time basis. So. But that's an interesting array of jobs you described, including operating an elevator uh, at the Washington Monument. I assume that was a summer position. It was a summer position, and my friends were working on Capitol Hill, which was a very in a low-paid position. I couldn't really afford to do that. And so I was able, uh, really through Senator Bellman's help, to get appointed to the government service. And my uh, appointment was to the Washington Monument. I had a beige dress and a Smokey the Bear hat. And I gave the speech about the Washington Monument about 40 times a day, five days a week. It's 555 feet, five and one eighth inches tall, in case you needed to recall that. Okay. And and did you give that speech while while the elevator was going up or was it while people were waiting or how how that? Uh, Usually while the elevator was going up, sometimes the elevator did break and it was summer, and then you would be in the elevator thinking of things to say mm. while someone rescued you from it. So it mm. was, uh, and also sometimes you'd stand at the top, and people would point to the White House and call it the Washington Monument, and you would correct them. And then sometimes people would just ask me to speak for them because they wanted someone else to hear my accent. Oh, <laughs> oh my. It did okay. make me fall in love with politics in Washington, D.C., and so I think it, it, it was a building block in my career in that way. Well, and one, uh, no, no, I'm not being lighthearted, one of understanding in part about public service because it is about interacting with the public and learning how to handle the public. So that is most moon, r- rudimentary sort of way. That's, uh, that's what you get out of a position like that, I think. So my own counterpart would be not having done that in public service, but as a young, young man being a bartender and you deal with a lot of people face to face who will never remember your name and not remember your face, but I, you can remember them often by what they say and do. So at any rate, so um, maybe that was the summer after your junior, even senior year. Is that right? Or was that uh, uh, junior year? It was the summer yeah. actually president Carter announced for president. Cause I was in the auditorium in Washington, DC. Oh, oh that's a memorable. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. a memorable event. Yeah. 76. I, I remember that. So you then, in sounds like maybe in 77, would have decided to apply to go to law school. 
Is that something that you uh, had long planned to do, or is that did that come that decision come late? You know, it was something that was in the back of my mind. I had a brother-in-law who was a patent lawyer who tried to vigorously discourage me from the path, but I I loved I loved writing. I I liked analysis, uh, and and frankly, I knew it was a way I could always support myself. Right. With that degree, I felt like I could always support myself. And at that time in my life, that was probably, you know, one of my highest priorities. Right. It was your experience in, um, did your experience in Washington affect your thoughts about going to law school? Did it spur them on? Was it indifferent or, or were there certain experiences you had while you're in Washington that made you think, well, that'd be a good complimentary in other words, part of what I'm looking, what I'm thinking of here is that I think, uh, and as, as we talk more about your career and different aspects of your career, one of the things that strikes me is while you went through very distinct chapters in your life, I think there are elements of each step that you went through that in a way could lead to the next. And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. I don't know if this is one of them, being in Washington for the summer, if it influenced you to think about studying law or or not. I think I think it did. I think observing the the impact in the debates in Congress when I had days off uh, during the week, I would watch, I would go uh, to the Supreme Court. So I think absolutely that uh, it, it was one of those uh, life events that happened to uh, occur at a very pivotal time in my life and did, did impact uh, my decision-making to go to law mm-hmm. school. Any certain uh, hearing or Supreme Court case that you recall in particular that was uh, interesting for you? No, it was it was just such a an overwhelming experience, which with the you know the court and that the entire the building. It it just to me uh, it was it was just an exciting it was exciting to see both the debates in Congress, Supreme Court, uh, the whole energy of Washington D.C. at the time, and the ice cream in Georgetown also also was great. Swenson's. Oh my yes, that was very good. Uh-huh. Yes. You would know that. Yes, I would. I used to get something, I think it was called a Swiss orange mint or something like that at Swenson's. It was delicious. That's a great, that's a uh, very fun recall there. <laughs> okay. Okay. So law school, late seventies, early eighties. Yes. Uh-huh. Just graduated in 81, right? Yeah. And then, and then right into law practice directly after, uh, after law school. In yes. Oklahoma City, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. For the next pretty much all of that decade, private law practice. Yes. And I, I think the interesting thing about that time in law school is I was in the first class that had a significant number of women. Probably over a third of our class was female. And that was a, mm-hmm. a significant change. Mm-hmm. And at the University of Oklahoma, you were ranked by grade. Uh, by grade point average, and of the top ten women in the class, or top ten people in the class, seven were female. Oh my, fascinating! And, right, oh, it, right, because law firms who had traditionally not interviewed women, but said that they would hire the top ten percent of the class, had no option but to include <laughs> us in their interview process. <laughs> You've kind of cornered the market there almost. So exactly. That's fascinating. That's pretty fascinating. A third of the class, but 70% of the top 10. That's a that's an interesting statement. You know, I do remember my uh, freshman year law school also, and I was uh, struck at the time, 40% of my class was either women or minorities, which, uh, you know, for just a few years before would not have been anything like that. So by the late 70s, that was shifting pretty dramatically and very positive and appropriate way. I think about the the experience, your your uh, experience shortly after uh, law school and the path that you were on. Ultimately, we'll talk, obviously, as we go through this talk more, ultimately your career was far more public focused. But initially, I, I think it'd be fair, uh, looking for feedback, but it'd be fair to describe your practices private practice with a private client focus uh, almost uh, exclusively. Is that a fair, fair uh, yes, depiction? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. right, right. And in a lot of ways, I think anyone who, for whom law is a preparation for other aspects or other nature of career later on, the beginning years are almost, almost always, uh, unless you do go to work for a, a governmental entity, the practice is almost always private law practice, private focus on clients, but enables you to, to, uh, uh, develop skills and 
and work habits, et cetera, that I think are positive and kind of a springboard elsewhere. So those were challenging years in, in uh, this region of the country, uh, meaning the 80s, just because the early mid mid 80s, 82. Uh, July 5th, 1982. There you go. Yeah. Penn Square Bank shutting down and then the, the ramifications from that that just went on and on uh, extraordinarily uh, painful for the entire region, for an industry, but really for an entire region. So uh, that's impressive that you stayed in private practice in for that decade. The end of the decade, you left private practice, decided to become, again, still with a private focus, but general counsel for a company. So you went from having an array of clients to really having primarily one client. So uh, in thinking about this concept of that we generally see options and extensions of what we're doing in life and an extension into another opportunity. What was it in your uh, private practice years that uh, you saw into the potential of being general counsel of a company that looked interesting? Well, as a private practice lawyer, you obviously give advice to clients and then they move on and either execute the advice or not. And, and as you know, as general counsel and as an officer of the company, you not only get to help develop the, the advice, but you get to execute the strategy. And that's what was very appealing to me is being in a position to to not just be uh, cornered into giving very specific legal advice, but actually being involved in the strategy and how to use that advice, whether it was in a merger or acquisition or uh, a franchise negotiation, uh, expansion, any of those issues, not just, not just uh, handing a memo, but actually being part of the team. I think most, um, and, and so I, I appreciate completely what you've just described, and I'm thinking about the transition a person can go through when they're in that position. I think most lawyers would recognize that um, in most of the work, particularly if they are in private practice, and most of the work they do, they are an agent to a principal. Uh, they work to carry out functions for another party and uh, act as an agent for the person who in a business setting, the person who owns the business or owns the deal or whatever it is. It strikes me, uh, and I'm speaking in part of my own experience, but I'm curious about about yours, that one of the things when you do move to having one client, there is an evolution that uh, can occur, and I suspect often occurs, where the lawyer, agent for the principal, um, at one point is looking to how to effectuate someone else's deal, so to speak, but over time, evolves uh, into saying, if that were my deal, here's what I would do. Or your own confidence, perhaps, knowledge and confidence about the business uh, expands and evolves, though so that not only you're giving legal advice, you're, you're giving deal advice, and perhaps deal advice in other areas of expertise. So you, you went to thrifty car rental uh, from private practice. Was that, was that transition I just described applicable to you through that time or, or did you uh, arrive feeling differently or what? No, I think absolutely. I think that's what I was looking for and, that's, and that is what happened. It was a very entrepreneurial company. We, uh, in a matter of less than three years, we acquired three other U.S. car rental companies and yeah. about four or five international uh, operations, and then sold a portion of the business to Chrysler Corporation with a pretty tight, small staff. And so I was, you know, very much general counsel and vice president, but also, you know, managed, uh, oversaw the real estate department at one point, the human resources department, and uh, was the, you know, lead negotiator often on many of these transactions with the chief financial officer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you really uh, were able to uh, evolve. Uh, I, I do think there are people that go into law or accounting or other professions that are on pretty much a single path. But I suspect a person who has a high degree of curiosity and uh, flexibility and how they see themselves does evolve to seeing themselves as the from the agent to the potential of being the principal. In your time, so you're, you were with uh, Thrifty for... Uh, three or four years, I gather, late 80s to early 90s. Right. And, and then the, the company was acquired. Is that right? By, by, right, by Chrysler. Altogether by Chrysler, right. right. So it, had just, it had just completed a public offering when I joined and right. then it was acquired 
we acquired these companies and then Chrysler acquired the entire conglomerate. Gotcha. You perhaps had some slight gap pretty quickly back in the in that business then, meaning the, the car rental business. Do I have that right? Yes. In uh, 1994, we began the negotiations to purchase as one of the bidders to purchase national car rental from General Motors. So it was right. a time when when automobile companies saw car rental companies as an outlet for their capacity at their factories. And so, but General Motors had not done well with national car rental, had lost mm. close to a billion dollars during mm. their ownership. And mm. so they were, they were making a decision to either shut it down or to sell it. And so they put it out for bid. That's fascinating for a lot of reasons, mostly because my recollection is you all, uh, you then move from being what I might have, what I might have described as an agent, i.e. the lawyer to really be more of a principal in that transaction to acquire national car rental. Is that, do I have that? Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 So in a way, experience in an earlier time, evolving your skill sets, et cetera, and then seeing yourself differently and being seen differently moving into that second transaction. But obviously you all some, saw something in national car rental that General Motors didn't because I, uh, I remember you turned it around pretty, pretty well and then sold it just a few years later. Uh, as a very profitable company, if I recall yes, correctly. So we did. Yeah, so, yeah right. Well, it was also a private company, so you don't have to comment on that, I suppose. Yeah, we, we did. Well, was it, yeah. it, it's interesting, though, and I think what you've said, and I know you've seen this in your career, as a private lawyer watching other people negotiate transactions, you're able to see the positives and the negatives without taking the risk. So when you're in the driver's seat and you're taking the risk, you can better analyze which ones you want to keep on your plate and which ones you want to throw back. And I have had a client in private practice that had a serious uh, environmental issue. They dumped into a super fun site, but what they were dumping was a soft drink. It wasn't, a to- wasn't as toxic as the other things that were in there, but they were equally liable. And so when we negotiated the deal with General Motors, my most important thing was that General Motors remain, all the environmental liabilities remain with General Motors. Because mm. we're dealing with cars where there's gasoline tanks and there's oil mm-hmm. being changed, all of that. Mm-hmm. They retained 100% of the environmental liabilities, which mm. made a huge difference in the risk of the deal. Mm-hmm. My, my. Yeah, that's clever. So in some ways, as I think about, I mentioned at the outset in the book, these two chapters, one just say yes, but the other one, your and matters more than your what. It kind of felt, it feels like to some degree at this point, in each case, what you're doing is kind of a logical extension of your prior activity from private practice lawyer to general counsel of a company, learning the business quite a bit more, that company being sold, moving from general counsel to being principal of another uh, car company and applying what you've learned before. So in many ways, you're pushing out in terms of your own experience, and your own responsibility, but each step seems to be an extension um, of the other the, the next step you took, uh, and I suppose here's another uh, similarity in each of those positions, each of those chapters you would have lived by this time. So now, having gone into private practice in 1981, we've, we've moved up, I think, when you sold National Car Rental to 1998, you know, a 17-year stretch. And in each of those cases, you were in the private sector and delivering private services to uh, private individuals, by and large. And your next chapter... Uh, it seems to me is a good bit more of a step and one in which you have to kind of decide you're going to say yes to a very different new experience because then you move from the time period in which you owned national car rental and perhaps with some hiatus in between. But your next position, my recollection is, is Secretary of Commerce of the State of Oklahoma. Do I have that right or have I missed something? Yes, that's the, correct. That's yeah, correct. Yeah. So now you move to public service. Purely, it's a public position, but it's also about delivering services to the public. So I'm curious about your thought process through that time in terms of this is this is a much more of an extension of a, a skill set and an arena in which you're going to operate. And I'm curious about your thought process at the time about that extension. How big of a demand you viewed it as uh, then as being a uh, leveraging skill sets you had already developed 
versus needing to develop new skills to be able to assume those responsibilities in the new position. How did you view that transition to Secretary of Commerce? I, I mean, I think the skills that I had developed in understanding business and managing a team transitioned very well. And frankly, I, I, I was interested in that position uh, because it had always been in the back of my mind since I was in D.C. that I would like to be in public service, but I frankly couldn't afford to until we sold national car rental. Being in public service was not something that that from my due to my prior uh, you know financial background, losing my parents, that I felt like I could afford. And so when the opportunity presented itself, I I guess I, I aggressively lobbied for it and was both the Secretary of Commerce, so the cabinet secretary position, but also the executive director of the department. The hard lesson I learned was that the public sector and the private sector do have different motivations. Uh, what may make sense in the private sector from the standpoint of when we began to go through the recession at the state of Oklahoma and we had to decrease staff may not make as much sense to the public sector and elected officials who are looking to the next election, mainly at that time, the legislature, uh, who oversaw the, the budget for the Department of Commerce. So I learned a great uh, a lesson about navigating the reasons for changes in the public sector, which are, again, very different than in the private sector where you have a profit, profit motive. Yeah. So your time you were in that public service, 2003 to 2006, if I have that correct, so you, you must be referring to the recession, kind of 0203, but perhaps from a public revenue standpoint, it had rec- recurring consequences, 03 into 04, perhaps, just revenues being short. Yes. And the Department of Commerce was 100% state funded. So it's 100% funded by the state legislature. Um, While the governor recommended the budget, the legislature had to approve it. And decreasing staff at the Department of Commerce, which was one of the few agencies that had what they would call non-civil service employees, was was a challenge because many of those were kind of, quote, protected employees by various legislators around the state. Right, right. Protected would be in quotes. Yeah, right, right. Do you feel like a jack of all trades? Does this make you feel like you're less than your peers who are on the hunt to become a, quote, expert? Clifford Hudson, CEO of fast food chain Sonic for 23 years, imparts life and business lessons in his new book titled Master of None, How a Jack of All Trades Can Still Reach the Top. If you'd like to learn Clifford's nine rules of thumb to finding success in life as a jack of all trades, just visit cliffordhudson.com. There you'll be able to download the first chapter of this new book for free. That's cliffordhudson.com for the first chapter of Master of None today. Now, back to the interview. How would you describe, uh, because you you obviously took a liking then to, um, I mean, I, I hear you saying you said a moment ago about there have been years where you thought you would be in public service, but you had to get to the point where you could afford it. How did you view after... Uh, those 17 years, the combination of lawyering and then moving into inside a company and then a principal in a company, National Car Rental. How did you view yourself in terms of having impact? I, I, it's, let me say it differently. It's not how did you view yourself. How did you view the opportunity to have impact once you got into the position of Secretary of Commerce after being in the private sector as long as you were and working on deals and deals and deals? You can have impact. In, in a relatively short period of time. How did you transition moving into the Secretary of Commerce? Did you find you were able to have impact in short periods of time? Or did you have to elongate that and focus more on policy? How, how would you describe that today? I mean, I would say that we were able to have impact. I think we built a great team. I built a great team there at the Department of Commerce. We were able to attract the largest uh, Dell facility outside of their home base in Texas in the U.S. Uh, and also we're able to strengthen the Main Street program, which really has helped revitalize many rural communities in our state. So I, I feel like I 
I feel like I was able to make a, a different kind of an impact on on people's lives, and also to bring together their three state agencies: tourism, commerce, and the workforce department. So a federally funded department, a state funded department, and then a kind of a tax allocation funded department, but all that had the same economic development objective, but had never worked together. And we were able to develop some structures that enabled, that that allowed us to leverage those state assets. Now, it makes me wonder, when you were with uh, Thrifty and then National Car Rental, presumably you worked a fair amount with secretaries of commerce of various states, and you had some insight on what the better practices looked like and what the ineffective practices looked like. And um, I would assume that made you a more effective Secretary of Commerce than you might have been otherwise. Uh, Is that a correct reading? I I think that's correct. And I think also, uh, for example, in in the Dell situation, I was dealing with the head of real estate development for Dell, and I could speak his language because of my private practice. Uh, mm-hmm. But I also understood what other states might be using to try to lure that facility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a fascinating, I mean, this is the way life works and it works best. And that is the next step you take really is a, an effort to take the combined skills that you developed from various circumstances and pull them together uh, in, you know, a, a, an integrated application to a new position. It strikes me that you're moving in the secretary, secretary of Commerce position was just that. Now, the governor at the time uh, was in his first term, and that term would have gone from 03 to 07, if I recall correctly, and a second term would have gone elected in 2002, served from 3 through 7, and then reelected in 06 and go from 7 through or, you know January, whatever it is, 2011, if I, my math is correct. So if you had stayed in that position, you would have stayed at least until 2007, may have done something different in additional administration, who knows, but you didn't. You left in 06 and decided to run for mayor of Tulsa. Talk about that if you don't mind. I'm curious because that's really pushing out quite a bit more just in terms of saying yes to other opportunities that come up, but also in this idea of being able to see opportunities in what you're already doing. Uh, Secretary of Commerce to running for mayor. Okay, there's some overlap there, but uh, one is an administrative position, one's quite the executive position. One's, uh, they're both public, but one's elected, one's not elected. How did you uh, come to that decision to do that? Particularly, as I recall, you ran against an incumbent, which made it, had to make it particularly challenging. So, A, a famous name incumbent. I, I really came to the, to the decision to run because of what I saw happening in Tulsa versus Oklahoma City. And I saw Tulsa uh, was potentially about to lose its largest employer, American Airlines. Uh, And the administration of the city at the time uh, simply, I didn't think, was taking the necessary steps to retain it. And again, it goes back to what you've said about, you know, every chapter in your life makes a difference. I looked at those 5,200 employees at the time at American Airlines who had kids to put through college and mortgages to pay, and they would never be able to replace those jobs. And we put together a package at the state to present to the president of American Airlines, along with President Bourne, who was there on their, been on their board, and the city just didn't come to the table. And so I, I made the decision in a probably not a very scientific way, but more in an entrepreneurial risk-taking way that... It was something I, it was a door that I needed to open. It was a, a walkthrough. And so having never run for office before and not really contemplated it, I took my check, hired a corporate branding firm uh, to do my campaign. And we ran by party. So a Democrat ran against me, a long-term state legislator. The party tried to talk me out of running. They said it wasn't my turn. I didn't realize there were turns. And uh, I ran and I I won that primary with 63% of the vote. I won the general election about a little bit after midnight by about 1% of the vote. Mm, mm, my, my, it's close. Well, that was, a, a, I recall, only as you say it, do I recall the, the tough um, primary you're in. I didn't recall the vote margin. That's pretty good. Uh, that's pretty good. Yeah, 63-37, my, that's a, that's a major separation there. So, 
so now you move to, uh, well, I, I, let me reiterate your comment a moment ago. I thought it was pretty interesting that you were, there you were Secretary of Commerce and you're trying to save an employer in Tulsa. And one of the things um, that tried, that spurred you on to think about that was uh, the mayor of, then mayor of Tulsa not participating significantly in the effort to save the employer. So no wonder you, one, you saw the gap and you saw the need, at least in, in that element of it, you decided to help fill the need. So you now move to the extension. We talked earlier about private sector and private clients, uh, public sector, public clients, your, your, your client, theoretically, the Secretary of Commerce would primarily be the state of Oklahoma, maybe, uh, maybe uh, municipalities across the state, I'm not sure. But now you move to where your client, you might say, in the public setting is the city of Tulsa. So I, uh, most of our listeners may not, won't have this background. I don't have the background. Now, mayor Tulsa is a strong mayor position as opposed to many other cities that have a, what's the term? A city manager, city manager, right. city manager and a weak mayor is the term usually goes. Right. Tulsa apparently doesn't not have a city manager, but has a strong mayor that's elected by the population and runs the city. Is that right? Do I have yes. that right? Right. Well, that's pretty fascinating because that's a, that's a different job. It's a heck of a job. And I've, I've not interacted close at hand with that, uh, that dynamic before you run a city council of how, how many, when you're doing that, how many members on the city council? So nine city councilors okay. uh, that uh, represent various districts right. across, across the, the city, city. Yeah. but the, uh, the mayor has the executive power. The council approves the budget, but the mayor hires and fires employees, negotiates right. trade union contracts, right. uh, issues debt, all of that. Many mayor positions across the country. They are weak mayors and they have professional city managers. And so the mayor, mayor's job is maybe a busy one, but it may be more handshaking and cutting ribbon cutting and public meetings and so on. But if you're in a city and you're mayor of a city with a strong mayor form of government, you're running the government. You're running so, the government and you're cutting the ribbons. Yeah. So it is a full-time job. And you, the, the areas I was very comfortable with, obviously, were the financing and the budgeting. Uh, but I hadn't dealt with police departments before, which is, a, which is a very different issue. I hadn't, you know, we, you do everything from manage a huge public works department for sewer and water and streets uh, to the zoo to the police department. So it's a, it's a very unique and diverse company, if you will, that you manage. Right. Right. Yeah. And did you enjoy the job? I loved the job. Yeah. I, I loved it. It. I, I will say it wore me out and probably wore my family out because I addressed it as I do everything in life. And that is 150%. And when you do that, you know, you're working from 6 a.m. till 10 p.m. Your, your phone's on. I kept my phone on all night because I felt like if there were a major event, a murder, the mayor should be called. We had the beginning of December of 2007, we had an ice storm that took out power for 75% of our city. Addressing that issue with the public utilities, the public works department, the fire department, it was a major issue. But all of that, I think I was able to go back to my, my management, my legal analytical skills, and bring those into play to address these issues. Yeah. At the Late in your term, that uh, 2006 to 2010 term, that must have been a period of time. Well, no, it must have been. It was a period of time, the 8, 9, 10 period, where we moved into you know, what we now refer to as the Great Recession. Yes. And I seem to recall that you uh, publicly stated you were not going to run for re-election. And the, the statement was made that you you were having to make some very difficult decisions and you're view was that you wanted to make those decisions straight up and you didn't want them be to be influenced by the need the pressures of running for re-election. Do I have that recollection correctly? Yeah, that's that correct. I mean, we were at the time, you know, negotiating furloughs with seven different uh, unions uh, and we are financed solely by sales tax revenue on our operating budget. Sales tax revenues dipped by 30%. We couldn't borrow money. You just have to balance the budget. And so you have to make some very difficult decisions that are not at the time politically popular. And mm -hmm. we had just done a very interesting financing, buying a new city hall, completing an event center, building a new multi 
sports venue for our to to retain our uh, the drillers, our local baseball team. So I think in a very fiscally responsible and innovative way, financing these long term investments in the city. The recession came, and then we really had to to cut back, particularly in with employees, without sacrificing basic services. So it, it was a very delicate dance, and I I felt like the political pressures that could come to bear could impact the decision making. And I I didn't I didn't run for office to be an elected official forever. I ran because I wanted to make a difference on the economy in the economy in Tulsa. Yeah. Well, that um, must have been a very difficult time. Uh, anytime you've got to you know, cut people like that, it's a challenging process, not an enjoyable one. I've been through that myself uh, and actually been through it in public positions as well as in private sector. Right. It's a tough deal. So now when you uh, left the mayor's position in Tulsa, you've now transitioned in uh, your career, private career, private sector career with private clients to your really quite full Full on, you know, public position, elected position, with with public customers, and suddenly that comes to a close when your term ends in 2010, and you're now, you know, back in the private sector with with uh, your time is now your own. I, I think I suspect largely. What made you decide to uh, participate in the leadership program at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University? How did that? How did that? How did you get exposure to that? And wh- what made you? pursue that? Some of my f- friends that I made while I was mayor, other mayors, because it is a, it's a very small, tight club. Uh, if you call another mayor for advice, you get a call back um, mm. immediately. And That's so a couple of other mayors that had been in the program encouraged me to apply. And it was, it was a wonderful experience. Um, bipartisan Republicans and Democrats, all from all geographic areas of the United States, that had been in different areas of public service from governor to Congress to mayor. And we, you know, helped talk to the next generation about how they could be involved in public service. So it, it, for me, it was like being a kid in a candy store. I, I uh, loved it. And, and the atmosphere at Cambridge was wonderful as well. So it was, and it was a mild winter. So it's Mm. even better. And what kind of perspective you'd, you'd gone through, I suspect a pretty demanding four years um, almost by definition, the mayor is so close at hand in delivering services to uh, patrons. These can be a, these are intense experiences, uh, but certainly going through the Great Recession as you did as mayor and the cutbacks, et cetera. Once you had the time uh, at Harvard, uh, what perspective did that offer for you in reflecting uh, on your time as mayor in terms of well, almost anything? What you might have done differently what your view, what your positive or not so positive view of it was? I I think I tried to make the office not a political office. I tried to approach it, much as I had Secretary of Commerce, as uh, a nonpartisan, more business-like atmosphere. I think in some ways that was a mistake on my part. I think you have to recognize that it is an elected political office. But I think the one story that I, I will always remember that makes me know that no matter how many issues I had as mayor, I made an impact is I, I had, I went to a lot of dinners at the convention center and my grandmother was a cook in a uh, grade school cafeteria. And I know that she was often kind of invisible to people. So I always left those events through the kitchen to say thank you to the staff. And so I got to know some of the kitchen staff. And at one of the events, a woman came, one of the staff came rushing up to me and she said, you know, may I speak to you? And as mayor, when someone wants to speak to you, it's either going to be really bad or really good. They don't just Mm. want to say hi. Mm. So she was crying and Mm. she said, you did a program last summer uh, that my son attended. And she said, I will tell you, I've made some bad decisions in my life. I've been in and out of jail. I've been, I've, Mm. I've done some bad things. And my kids, I told them they had to, they had to really make their way. And she said, my son starts college next week. Mm. Uh, and so it was, a, it was a, a program that we did for the highest poverty kids in our community to expose them to internships and to uh, college campuses around the state and connect them with Oklahoma's promise from the standpoint of being able to have their college paid for as, as we, that great program we have in Oklahoma. 
And um, that made a difference. And who knows the difference that has made in other people's lives from programs like that, that we took the mm-hmm. risk. Um, mm-hmm. we, we, we had a very young, aggressive, entrepreneurial risk-taking staff that wasn't afraid to, to try things. And mm-hmm. so I, I think that's the part I'm, 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 most, I'm the most proud of and that gives me the most satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, that's a nice story. Any word from him years later uh, or, or her, either one, uh, after he went no. off to college? No. Yeah. No. Yeah. 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 Well, when I look at your uh, professional life, thinking about the listener who's thinking about their own career, and you've, you've kind of closed a chapter there, you know, perhaps as you left the mayor's office, but maybe more so uh, with the capper you did at the Kennedy School of Government and that kind of bringing that phase of your uh, career to close. It strikes me that in the, in the last decade, to a considerable degree, you've kind of moved to, into a period in which you were back in the private sector, but now focusing perhaps more on public benefits rather than private benefits, using the resources that you have, the relationships you've had, the base that you built to uh, use your expertise for still for the public benefit. Um, and perhaps that's primarily through uh, nonprofit organizations. Those are focused on, on primarily on, on public education, but also on women's groups and uh, helping women uh, attempting to grow business, uh, grow business in Oklahoma in particular or beyond Oklahoma. How would you describe uh, these? So I, my focus really has been entrepreneurs because that's really where both my husband and I you know, came from, from the standpoint of you know, our business careers, uh, whether I was in private practice or uh, in the car rental industry. So focusing, helping entrepreneurs, particularly focused on women and, uh, and minorities, and helping uh, address the issues of equity and education. Because I know without the public education that I received, I wouldn't have had the opportunities that I had. I wouldn't have had the, the, the option to open the door and walk through and take right. those risks. So we, I started an uh, entrepreneurial competition when I was mayor. We moved it to our foundation after I left office, and we've helped hundreds of businesses launch. Uh, some are still in business, some are not, as we know with small businesses, but uh, providing them curriculum. And particularly now, we've, we have focused on food businesses, which are often small food businesses are often run by women trying to just hang on to the safety net. And we provide a curriculum just like you would with a tech company, but for a food business to be able to scale and really address the support of their family. And I think a lot of my passion always goes back to that moment when I knew I was my own support. And I, I look for ways I can help others find that uh, stability. Mm. Well, that's a critical point in your life and one that you can have enormous empathy for others as they confront that in their lives as well. I'm kind of curious at this point, if you see, um, I mean, things you're focusing on is public education and and attempting to remove a barrier for progress that uh, those less fortunate might otherwise confront, that is a barrier, as they try to move through life. But then also, particularly as, as you say, as it relates to women, uh, assist women in growing uh, business. These are wonderful goals to be able to pursue from your standpoint, your experience set. Do you engage in, I see you engage in these in part because of your own expertise and your own experience. Are these also two areas that you see as some of the larger impediments? What What is the, for the small business operator, is the access to capital a critical one or is that, uh, is that not so critical anymore or not? What's your, what's your perspective well, on that? I think access to capital, only 2% of venture capital in this nation goes to women and people of color. And mm. so that's, uh, that's a trend that, that needs to change. And that's mm-hmm. one of the organizations that I work with, Stitch Crew in Oklahoma City, is a business accelerator that focuses on women and people of color mm-hmm. and helping connect them with venture capital. Mm. It's an extraordinary figure. Well, when you, you, know, you take that to the number of women CEOs at Fortune 500 companies, I mean, it just, you kind of understand why that is, why that makes, makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. But, but in addition, I, I look around at, at that statistic, the number of, of CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, and we have not made the progress in the, in the last decade or the last 
30 years even that mm-hmm. we should have when women are half of the uh, population of our workforce. Right. So I, I think if there is a legacy that I now want to leave, it is making sure that I've done everything I can to help those that are trying to climb up the ladder, that are trying to get mm-hmm. on that first run and move forward. And again, it goes back to being able to support themselves and their families and having an equal opportunity uh, to share their skills. Mm-hmm. Well, it does. It's kind of poignant at this moment in time, just thinking about some of the comments with Justice Ginsburg passing on the, the concept of for women, you don't have to put me on a pedestal. I just want to be in the room where the, where the discussion happens and the decisions are made. And, right, and uh, it's essential, you know, essential to that for that to be the case. Well, uh, you're at a point in life where you have an opportunity to provide exceptional advice and exceptional uh, expertise, particularly for a younger person thinking about their paths. And and I don't know if there's any words of advice that you want to pass along before we close here today. But the way you have excelled in more than one area and excelled so completely is striking, and one that. Uh, make it so that any listener we have tuning in to this podcast today would have a lot to gain by listening. I think it follows along with what you've done in your career as well. And that is not be afraid to take the risk. If there's a door and an opportunity, evaluate it, but don't be afraid to, to take the risk for a new venture, for a new opportunity to, to use those skills that you've built in a, in a different way. It's, it's, I think it's all about risk-taking. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess the, the big issue for most of us is uh, where, depending on where you are in life, is what what you have to risk through the process, and it's not so much the uh, risk of reputation or the risk of not winning, but probably more one of do you have the resources to jump in, and that's going to be different different circumstances and very different for, for any variety of listeners today. So absolutely. Well, Mayor Taylor, I appreciate you uh, tuning in, talking in, participating. It's a great opportunity, I think, for people of a variety of backgrounds and a variety of interests to listen into the chapters of your life and the interesting story that you do tell, interesting story that you do have. So uh, I thank you for participating today, and we'll look forward to maybe what your next chapter is and hearing more about that along the way. So Thank you, and I'm, I am excited about the book, and I've loved listening to the podcast that you've done today. So. Uh, I'll be I'll be listening into the next one. Okay, well, thanks so much. Look forward to seeing you before long. Thanks for listening to Master of None with Clifford Hudson. If you enjoyed today's conversation, you can visit cliffordhudson.com to receive the first chapter of Clifford's new book, Master of None, right now. And one more thing before you go. Would you leave a review of this podcast and let us know what you learned in today's conversation? And remember, the greatest lessons emerge from personal discovery, and variety is life's multiplier of opportunity. Mm-hmm.